I've lost all ambition or worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. I've lost all ambition or worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. love. Lost all ambition or worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. I've lost all ambition or worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. Leo's feelings of dissatisfaction, alienation, and unreality are exactly the responses that these theorists describe plaguing citizens of modern spectacular society. You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? And if all this felt very relevant in 1999, in 2019, it's more convincing than ever to argue we are living in a matrix of our own making, a collective dream world in which the reality behind the simulation holds less and less weight. Because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. The social media post means more than the private experience. I already got 17 likes on my latest Instagram. All my peeps are bugging out because now they know what my meal looked like. And intangible corporations have as many or more rights than people. There are certain judges who are alleging that somehow corporations have the same rights as citizens. Citizens of advanced, hyper-capitalist societies are disconnected from who's growing our food or making our clothes. Don't you think the people buying these panties would be weird if they knew a bunch of villains made them? The shared frictions of digits on screens determine the futures of societies. People ride around on bikes sponsored by banks. The internet's more important than real life. Welcome to the future. Yet, as far as we know, this isn't some trick computer simulation, even if Elon Musk disagrees. The odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. It's a state of affairs that, step by step, our culture has openly chosen. People are following you, so we should count them. And then we should put that count right on your profile page and... Obviously, people care about that, so we should make it big. We're well aware we live in a world in which people care less than ever about the truth. Alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. Cypher's storyline about desiring to go back to the Matrix, even though he knows it's an illusion. You get my body back in a power plant. Reinsert me into the Matrix. Closely resembles Robert Nozick's 1974 thought experiment, the experience machine. It imagines a machine that simulates pleasurable experiences. I know this state doesn't exist. And asks whether people would trade their actual lives to plug into this machine. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. As material comforts get ever more seductive and unreal images ever more dazzling, the sensory experience you can enjoy in a wealthy Western society today is hyper-real, arguably better than reality. Reality's not going to be enough for her now. So Cypher might say, what's the problem? Ignorance is bliss. Why cling to that old dying desert you once called the real? 
I choose the Matrix. Nozick argued we shouldn't plug into his pleasure machine. Why? Because it matters to really do things, not just think you have. To be a certain kind of person, and not to limit ourselves to only those realities our rational minds, or the computers we've invented, can contrive for us. Nozick says this is just one of our fundamental concerns, that not just that we live a happy life, but that we live a real life, that we be in touch with the truth. So, stepping back for a minute from our Matrix-like world today, we have to ask if we aren't all making Cypher's mistake, being so seduced by the taste of a juicy steak that we throw away the best things we have, our human values, and our freedom. Their goals of, of engaging us the most by having us care about likes become our goals. We actually wake up in the morning as sovereign human beings and we start caring about the number of likes we got, as if that's our goal in life. The Matrix is a war of ideas, and what's at stake is the soul of our modern society. The age-old dualities of Western culture battle it out. Emotion versus logic, chaos versus order, spirituality versus science, free will versus destiny. The machines are the cold, materialistic determinists, striving to control the irrational nature of humans, represented by the resistance. Before Neo is freed from the Matrix, he's presented with a series of choices that contain the same duality. Freedom through truth or slavery through ignorance. His very last line in the movie again highlights choice. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. This focus on freedom and choice is so relevant because systems of power, like the machines in the Matrix, benefit from making us believe freedom is not an option. Either you choose to be at your desk on time from this day forward, or you choose to find yourself another job. When we meet Neo, he's living in room 101. The number alludes to his nature as the one, and in binary is the number five foreshadowing the discovery that Neo will be the sixth incarnation of the One. But most strikingly, it's a reference to the torture room in George Orwell's Dystopia 1984, used to make citizens conform by subjecting them to their worst fear. thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. The fact that Neo lives in this room symbolizes that his mind is a prisoner inside the Matrix, and perhaps also that his greatest dread is mental captivity. A prison for your mind. The Matrix paints waking up to the truth as a confrontational act. You have a problem with authority, Mr. Anderson. Because the powers that be are invested in keeping the wool pulled over your eyes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes. In the On Nihilism chapter Neo opens to, Baudrillard calls himself a terrorist, just as the agents refer to Morpheus. All that we're asking in return is your cooperation in bringing a known terrorist to justice. The Matrix is summarized for us as a system of control. What is the Matrix? Control. It distracts people's minds so it can exploit and enslave their bodies. In order to change a human being. Into this. Metaphorically, this is already true. Are human beings in our society not also exploited for their labor? If the Matrix's portrait is accurate, if this grand spectacle is a subtle, nearly invisible means of control... That sense that I was sort of losing control over my own choices, over my own attention, over who I was becoming... Then we have to ask ourselves, in our world's Matrix, 
who profits. Look at the Koch brothers. That's what they do. They have built a network of influence based on jewels. Their worldview is propagated into the world at an unbelievably aggressive rate that has been compounding for decades. The first movie's emphasis on freedom sends the message that even if it feels like you don't have any choice, you believe that you are special, that somehow the rules do not apply to you. Obviously, you are mistaken. This is an illusion. You have more power than you know because the one thing you have total control over is your mind. Never had a camera in my head. Thoughts are free, which is exactly why the Matrix tries so very hard to conquer our thoughts. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Though ignorance seems like bliss. It's only with our eyes wide open that we have any chance of solving the world's big problems and ensuring the continued freedom of the human race. We can start basing things on human values. We can change from time spent to time well spent. It's crucial for Neo to believe he's in control of his life. Do you believe in fate? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. The irony is that when he says this, he's still plugged into the Matrix. He doesn't even know what is real, so it's impossible for him to make real decisions. Not understanding reality makes us like babies, incapable of agency or consent. We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. The Matrix uses references to Alice in Wonderland to capture Neo's feeling of being a scared, naive youth who's unsure what's real as he encounters a strange new world. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. At the beginning, Trinity tells Neo to follow the White Rabbit, and when he spots this tattoo on a woman's shoulder, he follows the sign and begins his journey in pursuit of the truth. The later red pill, blue pill choice. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Is similar to Alice encountering a cake labeled "Eat Me" and a bottle labeled "Drink Me," which she has to consume in order to change physically before she can go further. And when he sticks his finger into the mirror, this captures the feeling of going through the looking glass into an alternate plane that discards conventional logic. Neo is also compared to another unsuspecting ingenue whose world is turned inside out. Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz. It means buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. In addition to a number of John Woo and other Hong Kong action films that influenced the fight scenes, The Matrix channels the vibe of the cyberpunk genre, especially William Gibson's 1984 novel Neuromancer, which also centers on hackers and features a computer network called The Matrix. The Matrix has its roots in primitive arcade games, said the voiceover. A term that can also be traced back to the 1969 novel *The White Room*. Another cyberpunk staple, *Ghost in the Shell*, has a clear impact on the visuals of *The Matrix* and also tells the story of uncovering a world-shattering truth about oneself. What if a cyberbrain could possibly generate its own ghost, create a soul all by itself? And if it did, just what would be the importance of being human then? Science fiction writer Philip K. Dick is another big influence on the Matrix's thought. We are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed. Deja vu is usually a glitch in the Matrix. 
It happens when they change something. In the years since The Matrix, the Wachowskis both came out as trans women, and this has also inspired many to read the story as a parable of gender dysphoria. Like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. There are plenty more film and literary references that can be seen. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. It's called Mesclin. It's the only way to fly. Metropolis, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Alien, Men in Black, Karate Kid, The Terminator, Strange Days, Dark City, the TV show's Welcome to Paradox. The technology we developed confronts us. And Doctor Who? I deny this reality. The reality is a computation matrix. In our other Matrix video, we also discussed the allusions to the Christ narrative, as well as references to Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Dreams. A clear pattern emerges in the ideas fueling this story. People need a push to think more deeply and seek the truth. You need to unplug, man. And if you aren't paying attention to any of this, that probably means you're asleep at the wheel. So how many of you are asleep at the wheel? That's the thing, you know, in life, we decide if we're going to be spectators or participants. And what was incredible about the movie, The Matrix, it put everything over the past, you know, 70 to 80 years of um, hints into one package that made sense. Now, are you plugged in somewhere in some manufactured, you know, uterus <laughs> uh, being sucked on by, you know, machines for life? I don't think so. But you are trapped in your own mind. And that is a big problem. People believe that they are bound by things. They've sold you an American dream that you will never achieve. The only thing that American Dream does is ensure that those that play the game right fail and are in perpetual debt. Slaves. 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 Now, a lot of people are like, well, no, nope, I'm free. Well, you were at some point, and then you gave it up for many beautiful comforts. It's for the good of the people. It's for the good of society. It's for the greater good. You know, yesterday when we talked about the Facebook thing, I was like, that's funny. <laughs> planted, planted uh, whistleblower, isn't it? I told you. Now everyone's kind of on the same page. Like you needed to wait for her to talk to see it. See, the, the fun part is <laughs> that anything that was intended for evil can boomerang right the fuck back. So now they're ushering. Oh, it's, it's for the safety of the kids. Oh, we must do this. We must do that. You see, there's a difference between actual people opining and having a perspective from the inside and people from the outside that are. Yep. 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 And I'll, I'll show you how. So many people believe George Soros is at the top of everything. Nah, nah, nah. No, he's not. He's a front man. BlackRock is at the top of anything. Nah, nah, nah. No, it's bigger than that. All of these serve the same master. Every single one of them.
So now the Hill came out today shocked. Oh, you know, oh, who did they say put it out? ProPublica put out this article how McKinsey was helping Pfizer in China and this, and they were working for the FDA. Oh my God. And it's like, yo, did you forget about a report you did like a year or two ago saying how McKinsey was kind of cozying up to the opioids while working for the FDA, but now you're shocked. You weren't shocked then. See, <laughs> so the question everyone should say is who are they serving? Who are they? Not who, who, which is who they are serving, which are all these clowns. So today you're going to see an insight to understand how many layers your mind must dig out of in order to see the bigger picture. Picture it like you're buried underground, right? Your life is buried underground under layers of companies, upon companies, upon regulations, upon authorities, upon, 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 upon. I'm going to take you back to April 24th, 2020. I want you to take a listen to this. Give me a moment. Let me share this. This is right after COVID had us all locked down and Oh my God. And I had already talked about hydroxychloroquine because before anybody did, I already told you what was there. I already told you what the RNA one <laughs> that they were presenting, which had adenine, 33 damn consecutive adenines with a fine graphene seam. Oh, tech. But this is important. So now, before we have to break, I think I have about two and a half minutes. I want to pull up again that video so you can hear Doug Burgum tell you what set me off yesterday and where I realized he is it. He's the one that does the smart restart. Smart restart. In order to restart something, you got to zero it out, right? Listen. You talked earlier about only using 1% of hospital capacity, I think you said. Um, you, you, do you um, attribute that to the testing that you did early on? You launched an app, a mobile app. Can you talk about that and how it works? Well, we did, uh, we did act uh, quickly when we saw that the virus was coming. But one of the things we know on our path forward uh, is, of course, widespread testing. And everybody's talking about that. But testing needs to be linked with contact tracing. So when we find a positive, we've got a rapid response team do drive-through testing, uh, test a significant number of people around that individual, and then begin a, a thorough contact tracing of all the contacts that they've had. It was largely done at small scale at largely a manual process and telephone interviews and paper. And there's an opportunity to bring technology both to the back-end infrastructure uh, through, uh, you know, cloud mobile databases that would allow us to track thousands of people and do that efficiently with distributed teams across the state doing localized, either in a community or at a tribal setting, doing contact tracing. Uh, and then we also did use technology because virtually every citizen has got a you know supercomputer in their pocket called the you know smartphone that's got geolocating and our application allows people to opt in uh, and be completely anonymous they don't have to enter any personal data whatsoever not an email address not their home address uh, don't have a credit card nothing that would identify them the app assigns them a 36 digit anonymous 36 digit anonymous number yeah magnetic drum 
we're going to get into that right after this short break. So this is where I realized that the state of North Dakota was picked because it is one of the most saddest states. It's the most corrupt states. It gets like an F everywhere. I mean, they do have a secretary of state that's been there over 20 somewhat years, an attorney general over 20, 20 odd years. They are so set in the ways that the people are just not able to respond anymore. So it's a state that has had the same people govern them for decades. What does that sound like? That sounds like a, a monarchy because it's the same people recycling. Sounds like a monarchy to me. Well, now we're going to go to an old, an old video of Tucker's, right? Um, I actually like this because he like slayed on Peter Walker. This is from 2020, uh, same date of the show, because I referred to this. This is really important. Take a listen. But, uh, you know, to me, that's just part of a system where they define democracy as responsive to the people. And I think they tend to, they tend to do that reasonably well. Walker says he has visited mainland China at least 80 times over the course of his long career. He's also written a book. It's called Powerful, Different, Equal, Overcoming the Misconceptions and Differences Between China and the United States. Chinese state propaganda authorities have publicly praised Walker's book as helpful to their cause. After we aired last night's segment, the snippet of which we just showed you, Peter Walker contacted our office here and asked for the chance to come on the show and respond to what we said. And we're glad he did. Peter Walker joins us tonight. Mr. Walker, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I want to get to something that you said. I want to start with the, the pandemic, because that's why we're talking about China in the first place. And I want to get to something that you said to Bloomberg sure. Television last month. And I'm, and I'm quoting you here. Yep. You said you were praising China's response to it. And you said, I'm quoting, when people look back at what was done with the magnitude of the quarantine in China, they are going to get high praise. Now, credible reports suggests that Chinese authorities locked people in their apartments and left them to die. We know they snatched people off the street and threw them into police vans. God knows where they went. That's the quarantine that you think they deserve high praise for. Why? Well, I, I think, Tucker, if you just look at the results, okay, so I, I know there's always going to be questions about exactly what the, the numbers are, but I think the harsh action that they took, given the scale of China and the number of big cities in it, was exactly what they needed to do to be able to prevent the outbreak from going any further. And the reality is the outbreak hasn't gone much beyond Wuhan. Did you hear that? He said it's okay that they locked people in the house and left them to die. He said it's okay that they would haul people off in vans and nobody knows where they went because it was better than preventing an outbreak. These are one of the top people, right? that you can still see that make decisions for all of us in this nation, for the greater good, of course. Now, now, having said all that, am I happy about their lack of disclosure and lack of transparency? Absolutely not. They should be faulted for that. They should be accountable for that. Okay. What would you say to the families of those who died, starved to death, alone in their apartments, or the people who are wondering where their relatives went after they were bundled into Chinese police vans. How would you square their grief with the praise you just heaped on the quarantine? Look, I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you just have to look at the total picture. It's like when Cuomo gets on every night and when Trump gets on every night, everybody's heart has to go out to every individual who died. 
and and it's part of the suffering that comes with this disease and it's it's heartbreaking every single one of them is but um they had to do it otherwise if you could imagine the scale of china if that blew out in large numbers to other cities uh the numbers would be off the charts well, Wuhan, where it began, is roughly the size of the New York metro area. We've lost more people in New York than the Chinese, at least publicly admit they lost in Wuhan. Given that you are praising their response, do you think American authorities would be warranted in locking infected New Yorkers in their apartment until they starve to death? Well, you know, I, I mean, the U.S., I think, got a late start when all is said and done. China got a late start, too. But I, but I think the U.S. Right. got a later start and was also more unprepared when it comes to having the kind of the people, staff, the health workers, the uh, the equipment that was required, the PTE, For sure. all of that. I think that's so, right. But, but so, if, if we had yeah, started so, so earlier, I, do you think it would have been wise to lock people in their apartments till they die? No, no, look, I mean, the, look, uh, there are a lot of things about China I don't like. And certainly those specific actions, I think, were overly harsh, were insensitive. And uh, and yeah, and, and China, China bears the brunt of that. They're accountable for that. I totally agree. OK. OK, so um, you said that you don't like some of the things China has done. I just want to go to something that you have said. This is from your website that that you do like. Um, you were asked about the Uyghurs. Um, I'm sure you've been asked many times. And you were contrasting yeah. human rights in the U.S. and China. You said, in the U.S., human rights are inalienable and absolute. Human rights in China are relativist to be weighed against other societal needs. For example, you, you mentioned the Uyghurs, including food and shelter. You said, as an example, on the treatment of the Uyghurs, China would point to dramatic improvements in the Uyghurs' quality of life and that would include over the last 50 years in terms of literacy, prosperity, longevity, as well as a sharp reduction in Islamic terrorist incidents to the benefit of all Chinese. That's what China got out of putting a million people in concentration camps. Do you think that was a fair trade-off? It sounds like you do. No, no, actually, actually I don't. Um, I, I, I understand that from the government's point of view, clamping down on Islamic terrorism uh, was a high priority. And one of the things when you spend a lot of time in China, as I have, is they are fanatics about stability. Um, do I agree that locking down a million people in a tournament camp is a smart way to deal with Islamic terrorism? Absolutely not. Um, but I, I wonder, of, I, mean, I wonder, though, I, well, good. But but may I ask, what, why would you note that their literacy had increased? I guess I guess the obvious question is, who cares about your literacy if you're in a concentration camp? Yeah, but yeah, but, you know, that's a good point, Tucker. So let me one, one of the things in researching my book that just became very clear to me, because a lot of times I said that to Chinese people, I said, you got a lot of things. My going book. For. He why just are you doing things book. the way you do? And he just plugged his book, The Uyghurs, that they take parts of this is from 2020. Where were your ears listening to that? I was. I was pissed. But there's more. Now, before we get into the more, I wanted to show you more immorality. Okay? Immorality. Because I told you that what's coming is going to be disgusting. Your kids, you won't be able to eat. You won't be able to live and have a job. But what about a home? Mark Dice did, did this uh, man on the street. I think it's really important that we... Uh, drop an eyelash that way and take a look. 
because it was quite fascinating. Mandates are getting extremely Orwellian, but how far will people go? Will they sign a petition to support evicting people who don't get a vaccine? Let's find out. Can you help us to evict the unvaccinated from uh, their apartments? Just to, no, thank you. You know, a lot of businesses uh, are mandating the vaccine. We're going to have it mandated in all apartment complexes for the renters. And this way, yeah, just print birthday and a signature. Whoa. This way, the landlord will be able to evict anybody who's not vaccinated and keep everybody safe. You know, they can maybe go. She signed it, didn't you know, even ask who he is. If they don't want to take the vaccine. Thank- I, I'm very much in favor of the vaccine. So. Yeah, obviously. It's the only way to, yeah, it's the only sane thing to do. Thank you so much. This way, somebody's renting an apartment or a house, they don't take the vaccine, we can have them evicted. And maybe we can put them in a concentration camp until they finally decide. It's the only way that we can keep everybody safe, you know. Hey, property owners do what property owners have to do. It's their (laughs) right to evict So disgusting. You don't want, you don't support the eviction mandatory? No. Okay. Well, all right. Thank you. By the way, subscribe to my channel. if you're Not the eviction, but you're not allowed to go buy food, eat food, go to any events, go to school, get a job. But we're not going to evict you. How the fuck are you going to pay for a house if all that stopped? New here. Check back on a regular basis. Businesses are doing all that they can. But evicting the unvaccinated is the next step in the new world order. So, thank you. Thank you. Makes sense. And, you know, and if somebody chooses not to take it and then, you know, they want to go live under a bridge or something, I mean, that's their decision. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, thank you All so right. much. Yeah, have a good one. Will you help us to evict the unvaccinated from their apartments to help keep everybody else safe? Uh, I'm we not going to do that right now. No, not right now. Maybe later. If somebody works for a company with less than 100 employees, then they don't have to get the vaccine. And so this will mandate anybody who's renting an apartment yeah and then the landlord the, well, they're not dead who's not vaccinated really yeah that's what we're trying to do so. oh, okay. yeah all right thank you this way if look at them they're signing this knowing that they're they're asking to kick out the unvaccinated from their homes and these people are freaking signing it no problem they agree that's the next step Somebody doesn't want to get the vaccine, they they can get evicted. You know? That's good. Thank you so much. Yeah. I agree with you. You know what? That's the drastic times call for drastic measures. And because we all want to be herd immunity. And if somebody's employer is not going to mandate the vaccine, then surely their landlord will vaccinate it. And most people will choose not to get evicted. Uh, birthday and a signature. So this way we can do you know use a little coercion to. You know, to get them to take it and get things back to normal. Oh, thank you. That's okay. Thank you so much. No. No. You know, if you work for a company with less than 100 employees, then nobody can force you to take the vaccine. So this petition will mandate that all landlords evict anybody from their apartments if they don't take the vaccine. Yeah, and a signature to evict the unvaccinated. You know, if once the landlords start enforcing the mandatory vaccinations, there'll be no way for most people to escape it. Yeah. Thank, you for, thank you for supporting that. 
this will uh, allow all landlords to mandate it for their tenants. So just a print birthday and a signature to support the mandatory vaccinations for all, all renters. These are the people that will be firing up the ovens. We have to agree to the contracts of the homeowners association. So, you know, those who refuse can face the consequences. They can get evicted. Thank you for supporting that. Yeah. You know, landlords own the property. And if you're renting, you have to abide by the rules and the lease. And so right now they can't evict anybody for not directing the healthcare decisions that they want. So this will help to stop the pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, quick uh, signature to support the mandatory vaccine program for all renters. You know, if somebody doesn't, they mandate the yeah, vaccine. We'll support that. Yeah. Yeah. Print birthday signature. As you know, they mandated it for employers with over. Does this not make you sad? Does it not make you sad that these young people, old people are more than happy to make you less of a citizen because you choose not to get a vaccine? You know, if I were someone that's been around for a long time watching humans interact like this, do you think that I would have any qualm about just getting rid of all of them at once, nuking that shit? Think about it. It takes great courage and great understanding. This is one of the scariest things that you'll see. This is the precursor to them firing up the ovens and killing you because you do not follow the law that they say, whatever that is. You must take this. You must eat this. You must bow. You must bend the knee. You must do this. This is the future. Is this the future you want? 100 employees, but if you work for a small business, then nobody can force you to take the yeah. vaccine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So this way, uh, birthday, birthday. Oh, birthday. Yeah. Gotcha. And then this, this way, landlords can mandate the vaccine for their tenants or evict the people. Gotcha. And that way we can help keep everybody safe. Alrighty, man. Thank I you so it. much. Yeah, cheers. You know, this way we can make sure that everybody's going to take it because I'm sure that nobody's going to want to get evicted. And uh, birthday to support mandating the vaccine for all renters. You know, and if somebody really chooses to, I mean, we could just, you know, put them in a FEMA camp for free or something. So okay. uh, th thank you so much. And, you know, if somebody doesn't want to do that and they want to get evicted, then that's their choice. Wouldn't you agree? I'm all for the vaccine. Okay, just a quick signature to help. Yeah. You know what? If your boss isn't going to make you take the vaccine, maybe your landlord will. And that way we can keep all the renters uh, birthday and a signature. How miserable are birthday? these people? Well, you can put it, something down. It doesn't have to be your birthday. But, yeah. all right. all right. We help to support mandatory vaccination program. Just need a couple more signatures here to help. Do you need California residents? Nope. Okay. What am I signing? It's to mandate the vaccine in all apartment complexes, just oh, like yeah. just like they're doing it in the businesses. So sure. if you're a renter, you're going to have to take the vaccine. I think or, everybody should be vaccinated. Or you can get evicted. 
I mean, you're saying you want people to get back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want yeah. This for the you know the the businesses can mandate it, and so this will mandate it in all apartment complexes for the renters. And if somebody uh, birthdays there too, oh, please, sorry. and a signature. And if somebody doesn't want to take it then and they choose to get evicted, then, you know, that's their decision. Well, I didn't put my birthday. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's the only way we can help make sure that everybody takes it is to just mandate it in the apartments. So Perfect. Thanks. Thank you so much. Good luck. Bye-bye. This way, you know, anybody renting an apartment doesn't want to take the vaccine and, you know, they can get evicted. There you go. Thank you for supporting that. If somebody renting an apartment doesn't want to take the vaccine, they can get evicted. Yeah. You would agree. You know, we can house them in maybe a FEMA camp or something. Um, <laughs> Thanks for doing right. this. Right. You're, You're very welcome. Talk. Vaccinations in all the Thanks apartment complexes. Him. Oh, not the chance. No. Good. Well, how else? Good. What we want to do is we want to make sure everybody is vaccinated in the apartments nope. or they nope. can get evicted. We don't have nothing to do with telling people what they have to put in their bodies. Well... What, do you th- what country do you think you're living in, sir? USA. Someone who should be evicted and relocated to prison is Finally, Dr. Right? Fauci. And if you agree, order my new Arrest Dr. Fauci shirt from my online store, markdice.com. So how scary is that? To see people demanding that. But the last couple was amazing. No, this is the USA, right? This should This should terrify you because these people hate you. They will do anything to eradicate you. I mean, <laughs> happens all the time. When was it like floods and fires and whatnot? This disease. You know, it would be really funny if people actually looked to see where technology and how people were really were before the plague. <sighs> Blows your mind. Blows your mind but there were so few then they just needed to migrate this is what you do you just thin out the crowd right then you retrain the dissidents and if you don't you take their descendants and you brainwash the shit out of them they forget everything they learn and they move forward and on to the new generation but this one is a smart reset smart reset not any reset this is a super smart one Super duper smart one. So I'm going to take you back in time. Um, Let's see. How far back do I want to take you right now? I want to take you back in time to see some of these big players. And what they really think of you. Let's go and talk about McKinsey. This is from 2013. Why your CEO hired McKinsey consultants, consultants, right? Consultants. Why? Take a listen. Why? Duff McDonald's here to talk about his fantastic new book, The Firm, The Story of McKinsey. Welcome, Duff. Thanks for having me. All right. Everybody knows McKinsey, but what makes McKinsey different from all other consulting companies? Over the course of several decades, these guys have managed to position themselves as the premier and uh, uh, most important strategic consultant. The biggest, toughest questions that CEOs or chairman of the boards have, they think, you know what, we should ask McKinsey. In the book, you say that McKinsey sells, quote, enlightenment. Is there enlightenment 
worth the cost? That depends. It's obviously worth the cost to somebody because 85% of their business is repeat business. But one of the brilliant things they've done is they have relationships with individuals. It's clearly of value and worth it to the people who hire them, whether it's worth it to the people who get laid off, to the people who suffer the bad advice. You know, that's a case-by-case basis. But yes, they're providing value to somebody. And not all that enlightenment pans out. You talked about some of those bad cases. You can talk about GM, Enron, Kmart. Why don't these failures stick to them? One of the interesting things about McKinsey is because they're in the position that they're in where they're advising everybody, uh, one of the primary reasons to hire them is so that you kind of know through osmosis what everyone else is doing. So even if they failed you or someone else in the past, there's still value to hiring them again, even if it's in the very same industry, because they're talking to everybody else. If there's no accountability, so I want to get back once again to why do CEOs hire them? Is it to alleviate their own accountability? So if things go bad, the CEO can say, well, that was McKinsey's decision, not mine. Yeah, this is one of the beauty, beautiful things about their business model. I say in the book what they do is they sell the credit for their ideas. So if you're a CEO and you hire McKinsey and they give you a great idea, McKinsey's not running around trying to say, hey, that was us, that was us. You say, hey, aren't I a great CEO? So you get the credit for their ideas, but they, in return for that, they don't really take the blame. How do they convince customers that a group of freshly minted MBAs know more about their company than their own employees? I'm not sure they managed to convince everybody about that. What they convince them for sure is that they're like a hardworking mercenary force that, you know, smart, ambitious, young MBAs will work all night for weeks for them. And then they have the McKinsey network, which is partners with experience. And also, again, the work they do for everyone else in your industry. Are consulting companies a positive force, to use your word, in American business? I remember the movie Office Space, when there's a scene where someone says, the consultants are coming, the consultants are coming, and everyone freaks out because they're afraid they're going to be fired. Do we need consultants? You know, I, I, I come at that from two places in the book. On the one hand, they're a force for efficiency, for rationality, for a new, uh, a fresh look at a problem. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. On the other hand, uh, they're sort of the rise of consulting in this modern era is indicative of our move away from actually doing things service industries that advise people on how to do things. And the question is whether society has been best served by all this brain power going into an industry that is actually doing things, but telling people to do things or how to do things. And I say, you know, the logical extension of that is if everybody becomes a consultant, who were, who will be left to consult? Very interesting. And it's a great book. Thank you, Duff. Thanks for having me. Thank you for watching the street. Dude, what a weird dude, right? So now let's go to today's news about McKinsey. We're going to go back and forth in time, right? We're going to go to today's news where they were so shocked because then I'm going to take you back in time to where they reported this shit before. So I don't know how they're so shocked. So let's go. This is quite fascinating to watch. In questionable dealings with Big Pharma, despite offering upwards of $50 million in consulting services to the FDA since 2008, McKinsey reportedly never disclosed their contracts with lucrative pharmaceutical corporations, including Purdue Pharma and Johnson & Johnson, with the government. This means that as McKinsey advised Big Pharma on how to evade FDA oversight, they worked simultaneously 
to shape FDA drug policy. We want to note that McKinsey's ties with the pharmaceutical industry were revealed to the public in 2019. However, this reporting shows the consulting firm neglected to ever alert the FDA of their massive conflict of interest for over a decade before that. Yeah. And, and it, it's very clear in this contract, you know, to be a government contractor, you agree to certain terms and it says you have to disclose any conflicts of interest you might have. Um, you know, this goes to a, a, a criticism that actually I make sometimes of excessive regulation is that the more regulation that there is, the more people involved in the process of crafting it, enforcing it, consulting on it, the, 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 the opportunities you actually create for the better connected, more powerful and more, more well-funded um, firms to game the regulation and hurt their competitors. I don't really know that that's what's going on here, but it, it, it's, I mean, it's a huge concern, right? That, that, that this, that this mm-hmm. consulting firm is involved in both ends of the process. I mean, we talk about the revolving lobbyist door, right? You can be in the, you can be in the government writing the rules and then immediately go to the private sector and, and you start advising firms on how to beat those rules. Right. And if you're McKinsey, you can do both at the exact same time. Right. And this actually opens up a nice uh, ripe terrain for future journalistic inquiry because McKinsey's probably doing this all over the place, right? Where they're where they're working on both sides of an issue, and they'll and maybe they would say internally they would say, well, we have a Chinese wall between this particular team and this particular team, but in this case, as they say, the contract requires that you that you disclose that you're doing this. the The regulation around opioids is is particularly frustrating and interesting in, in its in its history in the sense that at the same time that the US was waging this uh, aggressive war on drugs and and war on people really who were doing drugs right uh, the DEA uh, in in particular was rapidly and, and annually increasing the amount of opioids that these drug makers were allowed to distribute around the country people and and this is a story that really hasn't kind of been absorbed into the into the narrative of how how this has all unfolded because you think of the DEA and you think of them as these drug warriors who are just cracking down on on, on you know everybody's head that they can find but but in fact uh, drug makers w- with these scheduled drugs have to apply uh, you know for a particular license to distribute a particular amount of of drugs and every year they would lobby the DEA and the DEA would say, OK, you know what? 300 million pills wasn't enough last year. Let's do 500 million this year. And, and this is happening as it's already becoming apparent that there's this epidemic going right. on. Okay, well, let's do let's let's move this to 900 million the next year. Uh, and, and it certainly helps that they had this uh, sheen of professionalism around the entire thing, which itself is facilitated by McKinsey explaining like, well, look, these are just fancy powerpoints yeah you know, we couldn't be killing people with this yeah i mean there's some difficulties here because so obviously the opioid crisis is a big deal and you had people overdosing getting addicted etc same time you don't want to artificially cap some supply of pain medicine that helps people who are in a, lo- a tremendous amount of pain you know not under prescribing people um, uh, medicine that they need to deal with chronic really awful pain it is also a horrible thing and I don't, I don't know that the government knows exactly what the right number of pills to allow for people are. And of course, the drug company's right number of pills is right. more than, than right. we're currently. So, uh, but it's, it's right. And, and there, there, you know, there, there needs to be an ability of people who need 
you know, the prescriptions to be able to get them. Right. And the pendulum, uh, as it always is going to do, is going to swing too far in, in the opposite direction. At the same time, you had, uh, you know, opioid funded, you know, pain foundations that were basically bribing doctors to tell their patients that what they needed was, was this, this particular prescription. You know, they needed Oxycontin or whatever they needed. And because of the trust between a doctor Okay, I can personally attest to that. So it was um, 2014, and um, it was really bad at that point. Um, there was a reoccurrence, you know, after the surgery I had, you know, we thought everything was fine. And then suddenly I started to gain weight. I didn't understand why. The endocrinologist started to tell me, oh, maybe your baseline changed, right? And I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? What do you mean my baseline changed? So where I was always like a solid, you know, 140, 150, I'm suddenly like fucking 200. Are you kidding me? With just breathing, when I have no time to actually sit down and eat, something's wrong. And I was in a lot of pain. And so they did a bunch of tests um, to see what it was. They were like, okay, it's this. Maybe we'll do, you know, more chemo. I was like, nope, nope, we're not touching that. And then with the pain, the only thing they could offer was me to go to a pain clinic. And then the, the doctor would say, you know, you just need to take medication. So you're not in pain because pain management is important in life. So that way we can live. And I said, so you're going to give me drugs. So I can't think or else I'm in pain. There's got to be another solution. Um, and I, I said, no, right. I said, no, I'll, I'll live with it a bit. And that's it. I mean, I'm telling you, like when I went there, the guy had the scripts ready scripts ready. I remember in, um, 2016, I was in so much pain that I had gone to the hospital and this is how sensitive sensitive I am to opioids that um, I went to the ER. I was in so much pain. Like I was screaming. I, I couldn't stop. Like it was so painful. And so she pushes Dilaudid and there's like, you know, the syringe, it has like, you know, one ML and obviously I'm like two thirty, So it was like more than that. And she barely put some in. And I felt like I was like one with the bed. I felt heavy. Obviously, the pain went away instantly, right? Like snap. It was like, whoosh. but that was it. And I was like, holy crap. I did not feel good. So I don't know how people feel good with them. I felt no pain, but I also felt like I had absolutely zero control. And that's a problem for me when I don't have control over my own body. And I was like, stop. She was like, what? And I was like, dude, my shoulders are now like so heavy. She's like, yeah, it's just kicking in. I was like, no, no more. That was it. So I just like, was like, no doctors do that because if you're an addict, then you're in the system. You can't have a job. Then you're in the system. That's, that's the thing. This is a cycle. It's like you're on a hamster wheel. You want health, you take drugs. You want this, run, 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 and you go nowhere. They claim, oh, you don't have to feel, so it'll be better. 
I, I can't take painkillers. I can't. I, I can't. Everyone's on a hamster wheel and someone's put you in there. So today you're going to see one of the top layers of this pyramid. I'm going to show you everything you need to know. So these people, as you hear them, they're shocked. Oh my gosh. They had contract with the FDA for years and they were pushing opioids. And it's like, wait a minute, let's go back a year, back to the hill where look, okay. I'm going to show you the date. Okay. Cause this is how bullshit media happens, right? The date here says November 30th, 2020. Okay. Almost a year ago. What's the title? Sagar and Ryan docs reveal how McKinsey worked to addict millions in opioids. So how is it a fucking breaking story today? Interesting. It broke while we were all on break from the New York Times about McKinsey. Let's throw this up there on the screen. And it shows that McKinsey, the global consulting company, worked with Purdue Pharma, the Oxycontin manufacturer, for years, um, both in order to cover up their role in helping perpetuate the opioid epidemic, but also in their large past role in boosting and addicting millions of Americans to this terrible drug, which has pawned the opioid epidemic, the heroin deaths, and so much more that we see in this country. It's just a story of rank corporatism, about how they do not care about American citizens, about their customers or their, you know, citizens are supposed to be even taken care of in the first place. There's so much here, Ryan. Just break it down for us. What exactly did the story reveal? What, what it revealed is that McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm, uh, came to Purdue. This is years after they had uh, already been targeted by the federal government uh, for, for the murderous activity that they were engaged in and sold them a plan on how to turbocharge sales of Oxycontin. Uh, the, the, the plan was accepted by Purdue and it was, it was executed. Sales, uh, did surge. And it also shows, uh, McKinsey a couple years later starting to worry that because of all of the deaths that are resulting from, from this project, that the walls might be closing in, not just on Purdue, but also on McKinsey. And you have a, a top McKinsey executive executive start suggesting that, you know, we ought to be destroying all of our correspondence and, evidence, yeah. uh, you know, re related to this, you know, in case people uh, eventually turn on us. What, what's so crazy is, is not just uh, the extent of this, but, but when it happened. Like I said, around 2007, uh, uh, Purdue reached a, a settlement for, uh, for mi misleadingly pushing opioids on, on, the, on doctors, you know, through, and, through, and bribe, basically bribing doctors to push them out. In, into the public. So this is this is eight years later. You know, but back at, at the Huffington Post, we did a you know more than year long investigation into the the into the opioid crisis at, at the time, which later was a, a finalist for for a Pulitzer. And by the time that the media gets around to those types of investigations, and by the time the Pulitzer Committee gets around to start you know patting people on the back for the work they've done, you're deep, deep, deep into into a crisis. And it's at this point. So again, eight years ago. So this is where we're going to travel back in time again. Okay. We're going to go to 2013. Now, remember all that happened where they were pushing the opioids while they were working, consulting the FDA. Wait till you hear what I'm going to tell you today, but you need the background. Take a listen. 
considered one of the most prestigious management consultancy firms in the world. McKinsey & Company is not only incredibly powerful, but has played a fundamental role in molding American capitalism as we know it today. Started in 1926 by accountant James McKinsey, today the firm, also McKinsey, better known to those in the know as the firm, employs over 17,000 people and grossed more than $7 billion in revenue last year. Now, over the years, the firm has had some tremendous accomplishments and equally as stunning failures. But joining me now from our New York studio to discuss is Duff McDonald, financial journalist and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Firm, the, A Story of McKinsey and Its Secret Influence on American Business. Duff, thank you for being here with us today. Now, I want to start off, how has McKinsey shaped American capitalism as we know it today? Well, they've been doing it for almost a century, uh, starting with uh, the insight that launched them, which was uh, James McKinsey was an accountant, and he actually created the idea of uh, budgeting as a management tool. You know, instead of just filing your numbers and paying your taxes, looking at them and using it to plan resource allocation. And that's how they got their start. Uh, but these days they do everything from uh, efficiency consulting, which can involve layoffs, to strategic consulting, to IT consulting. Any question that the, the board or management of a, of a big company has about what should we do, uh, there's a good chance McKinsey is, uh, gets the call in there to help them figure it out. Now, can you tell us historically what are some of the most key moments McKinsey has had in shaping history? Well... One thing they did uh, in the uh, post-depression and post-war era even was to help large companies figure out how to just organize themselves. Uh, it, it's called an M-form uh, organizational chart, but it's the thing that anyone who's worked for a company knows, the sort of family tree org chart. They helped disseminate that uh, in the process, uh, helping sort of create uh, the way that companies organize themselves. Another big thing that they were involved in was the creation and dissemination of the whole idea of strategy. You know, most companies uh, uh, spend a lot of their time just focusing on the here and now. And McKinsey and a, and a couple of their peers helped uh, companies start to think about, you know what, you, you got to do more than just pay attention to what you're selling in the store today. You got to think about what you're going to do with the future and how to allocate resources for that. So they've been instrumental in doing that, too. And I want to get to that, the, how they're going to react in the future in just a bit. But first, I want to say, statistically speaking, you know, has McKinsey had more hits than misses in terms of those that they've been advising? We know they were at the helm at Enron, GM, some other pretty epic fails. Uh, absolutely. You know, they, uh, they were around when GM sort of ran into a wall in the 80s. Enron was a McKinsey was on the scene. Jeff Skilling was... Uh, Ex McKinsey, Swiss Air, they gave some particularly dubious advice to, which led to its bankruptcy. But uh, these guys have 85% uh, of their business is repeat business. So they clearly have some happy customers. And they're pretty much in the, in the corner offices of the majority of any big companies in any uh, economy of note in the world. These guys are literally everywhere. Now, they're notoriously secretive, McKinsey, as a company. How were you able to gain access to such a company? Uh, you know, one interesting thing about their secrecy is that as a reporter, it's, it's often hard to get people to say negative things about 
a subject you're writing about just for fear of reprisal or the fact that people just don't like to be quoted saying negative things about anybody. Uh, with McKinsey, it was actually the opposite uh, because part of the deal they have with their clients is that McKinsey doesn't take credit for their ideas. It's actually harder to get their satisfied customers to mm -hmm. talk about them because if you're the CEO of some company that used them and made a great decision, you're not about to turn around and say, oh, don't thank me, you know, thank McKinsey. It was their idea. So that was an interesting challenge. Uh, but it, it was just like any other reporting job that that you have enough lead time on. You start with a few people, you gather a few straws, and you just see where they lead you. Um, uh, McKinsey uh, offered, in the end, what I call limited cooperation. They came around and uh, gave me access to a few dozen uh, senior partners, uh, current and former. And uh, uh, basically, I got that by showing them that I was out to write a fair book and not just some sort of takedown. Now, I want to get to this. Uh, in 2011, former McKinsey Managing Director Rajat Gupta, he was convicted of insider trading after leaking privileged information, which he garnered from his position on the board at Goldman Sachs. And he leaked that information to Raj Rajaratam, uh, at the time was head of Galleon Group, the hedge fund. And at the time, it was one of the largest hedge funds in the world, and they both spent some time in prison. What kind of trauma, if any, has McKinsey really suffered as a result of this incident? Um, you know, interestingly enough, the, the Rajat Gupta ran McKinsey for nine years, so it was, it was a fairly mortifying experience for them. Uh, but uh, the specifics of his particular crimes had nothing to do with McKinsey. He had retired from McKinsey. He was uh, selling information to Rajaratnam, or wasn't even selling, giving information to Rajaratnam from his seat on the board of Goldman. So McKinsey was just sort of in his bio. It had nothing to do with that case. Uh, what's more interesting is another person who was giving Rajaratnam information was Anil Kumar, who happened to be a partner at McKinsey at the time. And uh, the fascinating thing about that is the fallout from that has been almost nothing as well. I talked to a number of uh, clients of McKinsey, and they uh, most of the CEOs of large companies have a certain amount of sympathy for problems like that. Uh, you know, with they call it the bad apple theory. You know, if you're if you're of a certain size and if you're successful enough, you're going to have rogues on the payroll. The only question is right. uh, whether it's systemic or beyond. And and apparently their clients don't seem to think that it was a problem with McKinsey, but with a particular individual. Duff, thank you so much for your... It was a particular individual, not McKinsey. I'm glad someone brought this up. And I know someone found a little treasure trove of 2018 shows that I did on Masak. Masaka, right? <laughs> for all the losers saying it's no big deal. Have you seen how many companies go down there? Clinton Energy Management, Hepstein, Wexner... DeWine, the Bidens, Obamas, Tiger, China, you name it, right there. So uh, those papers are very important for me. It was very, very hard to get that law firm to, <laughs> to look the other way. So it's really, really um, uh, important. So anyone telling you, I mean, the white papers are just a distraction. That's one of the source. That MF is the source. So it's uh, pretty interesting. Now, I wanted to tell you something about McKinsey that I noticed when I was going to Indiana. 
um, for that funeral of my former priest. I noticed that there was a lot of road work uh, by the Ohio-Indiana border. It seemed quite tight. I noticed the same thing at the airport in D.C. Was it D.C.? Gosh, I, wait. I want to think. Yeah, it was D.C.A. New type entryways or something. They were really weird. They looked like chambers, as if they're like gassing you as you walk along. But the one thing I noticed on the highway is, is that they had tolls, but they were creating these weird looking tolls as if they had things that were going to be coming out to block cars from going anywhere. And we're not talking barriers, pay your toll. And what I noticed was, um, uh, you know, as, as, as when we stopped in Indiana for gas, cause I had rented a car, um, I looked it up and McKinsey was the consultant for the company, and I forget the name, but I'll look it up because I made notes, of course, because I already knew about this. I just never heard of that company, and I was like, that's weird. That's not the company I know it's doing it. But I saw that McKinsey uh, was uh, consulting them. Well, you're going to see what is being done right now in your state while you're not paying attention because you're busy fighting vaccine mandates, mask mandates, high taxes, getting kicked out of your house, losing your job, not being able to eat, not saying these aren't distractions that are valid, right? But what you have, right, that's important is that your state is dumping a shit. Have you guys seen it? Remember, I bitched about the road work. Have you guys seen what they're building? on your highways, on your states, at the borders, at the borders. So what, are you not going to be able to leave a state? Are you keeping someone out or in? Hmm? Infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. What kind of infrastructure? Well, they talk about boobies and lactation and bullshit and social infrastructure. These fuckers are building blockades on our major roads exiting or entering the states sounds like you know not your average hey checkpoint for drunks on new year's eve sounds like are you a resident of that territory you're about to enter i just want you to pay attention and so um it was as I was going, what is it called? The 90 West, 90, 90 West. When I was heading to Indiana that I saw it massive blocks. And I've seen those before at barricades that they have in other countries. So when I saw the company name, because there were some suits out there in the street talking with the people that were, you know, and they were showing shit. I looked up the company's name and I saw that McKinsey was uh, consulting them. They consult a lot. They consult a lot. Here's uh, some scrutiny they went through. I want you guys to listen to how they're dealing with some scrutiny. This is 2019, 2019, right? Okay, 2019, two years ago. Worried and respected management consulting firms is finding itself in the subject of critical media scrutiny, much of it coming from the New York Times and my other employer. Uh, McKinsey has uh, faced a slew of negative press over the past year from uh, troubles in South Africa, potentially profiting on the outcome of Puerto Rico's debt crisis, taking heat for its work with Saudi Arabia. At one point, the firm was called the new Facebook, and it was likely not intended as a compliment. Why the uh, sudden scrutiny, and what is the company 
going to do about it. Joining us right now is McKinsey's global managing partner, uh, Kevin Sedeter, uh, for the first on CNBC interview. And we're, we're very happy to have you here. Thank you for uh, let's go through these, the, these headlines, though, and, tr- and try to understand what's happened, because it, it does feel like there is something rotten going on. When you, when, when you hear about these massive corruption scandals going on in South Korea, uh, not South Korea, I'm sorry, South Africa, uh, the situation w- with Saudi where you were identifying dissidents, which then were ultimately targeted by the government, um, the fine by the Justice Department over uh, on the bankruptcy front. I mean, do you think there's a problem here? Well, here's the thing. I am one of the people at McKinsey who I think has three things to do. One is to look very hard at what's happening, understand it, learn from it, and act. And that's what I'm determined to do. Behind each of those stories, of course, there's more to it than meets the eye. And I could spend a lot of time explaining to you the whys and the wherefores and how really to think about those headlines. But what's important, I think, in all of this, and I certainly recognize, is one of the great strengths of our firm in the past was its sense of mystery. In fact, I remember one of the first articles that covered us when I joined the firm was the McKinsey Mystique. I think there was a period of time when mystique was a good thing. Mystique's not a good thing anymore. People don't like secrecy, and we have to change with that. I recognize that. There's not a lot of mystique about me. I grew up in Glasgow. I understand why people feel that it's time to change, and I sense that our firm senses that too. What, what does that mean? For example, you, yep. you have done business with authoritarian uh, governments for a very long time. Uh, you have often run to the fire when others would run away from it, if you will. Do you, plan to, do you plan to say, you know what, we're not doing business with Saudi Arabia anymore? Well, let's, let me just take issue a bit with what you've just said, because I think one of the things we have done is to make sure that we work on the kind of topics that I think are positive for the world. And even in Saudi Arabia, where clearly there's lots of concern on the part of many business leaders, many political leaders, the whole world is focused in on what's happening there. Not everyone is running from Saudi Arabia, in fact, far from it. And what we do in Saudi Arabia, I think we make a positive contribution We have, for example, we're one of the largest employers of professional women in the country. That makes a difference. We've done work in education, economic development, the kind of things that give hope that youth will be employed in that country. The world does not want Saudi Arabia to descend into a place where there aren't jobs and where it gets really tough in a very nasty way. You can't change things if you're not there. Do Do you think that the New York Times has treated you fairly? I've thought hard about that question, and I think, regrettably, I think the answer is no. I think they've been unfair. That doesn't mean I don't accept and, frankly, respect and welcome the scrutiny. You saw Jill Jill Abramson's book, the part that that she wrote herself, where she said that the entire coverage of of the the, the, the 2000... I don't want to turn this into a referendum on on, on (laughs) the paper. It doesn't matter whether you want it or not. He's here to talk about that. Kevin, your point just there, that that you can't, and Joe's point with it, uh, that you can't help make changes on education or, or women's rights in the workplace in Saudi Arabia if you're not there doing it. Does that justify taking fees from an otherwise bad actor in other areas? Well, I don't think I look at it as terms of taking fees from a bad actor because the work that we do, and we think very hard about the work that we do, needs to be work that does make a positive difference. Sure. And but, that's but, what I'm focused on. Doing business with a murderer is okay by you? No, it's absolutely not. Okay. And, you, and when, when you find out that your client is a murderer, you do what? You walk. You walk. If your client is a murderer, and that's why when we think about where okay, we work so, and so what we work so let's talk about Saudi Arabia then. Sure. But what well, happened? Well, what we're doing and what we've been very thoughtful about is the kind of work that we take. And the kind of work that we take, we put some careful boundaries around it. Let's be clear. So we don't work. See, we know they're murderers, but, you know, what you're telling us, we get it. But see, we won't cater to their murders. We're just going to, like, I don't know, plant trees or give people jobs. 
or yeah, we're going to do other stuff. We're not going to worry about the murder stuff because we're not involved in that. Work for the Ministry of Defense. We don't work for the Interior Ministry. In fact, the sad thing about all of this, and you referenced it in the opening, the identification of distance, that isn't what we were doing. We were doing, I think, mistakenly an attempt to justify how to apply analytics. We didn't identify think Kim Jong-un is murdering we anyone, Andrew. But, but with Kim Jong-un or, or, or is Putin, has uh, President Xi, has, uh, and, and that, has anyone in Iran? Yes, we did a nuclear deal with Iran. Is there a question going on well, in the world right signaling. now for, busy, for business executives across the, the world about about the new you think boundaries? You can ask a black and white question about And that is the question that we're all wrestling with. Let's be clear, and we're wrestling with that, but we're not alone. Well, let's live in the real world. And that's one of the, so, what's one okay. of the real world and, and, questions. And think about what our interests are long-term in the real world versus some type of utopian virtue signaling. But that's a fair point, Joe. But that's a fair point. But grow up. In which I mean, point? In which point? I don't okay, think then don't the deal with Xi. Don't deal with Fine. North Korea. Don't that, deal with Iran. Don't, don't have any contact with any country where someone's that's been murdered. Fair, but what we murder people here with, with Joe, uh, capital a, punishment? What if, what if they have different laws, different values? Okay, let different- me say, that's a fair point. But then the pushback shouldn't be to say that. We think who's cut off relations. We, what company has cut off relations with Saudi Arabia? We do good work with the bad actors. BlackRock has any company cut off relations with Saudi Arabia and lived up to your virtual virtuous uh, uh, how you would handle it, Andrew? Uh, let me let me ask our guest a, a separate question. Um, a large part of your business um, is uh, at least the operations of your business has long been about recruiting and hiring young people uh, from some of the best universities around the world to come work there, oftentimes for several years before they go up to business school. I mean, that, that, is, that is a huge part of the model. And given that millennials, frankly, Joseph, actually oh, seem to care about some of these issues in a way yeah. that you may not. They're taking us on some hold great on, paths, Sandra. Yeah, I want to understand how help. you think this has affected your ability to recruit young people who I think care about these issues about purpose, care about whether you're working with murderers. And I care, too. And let's be crystal clear. We recruit about 8,000 people every year, and we receive 800,000 applications. Through the- so let's talk about the recruitment process. You ready, guys? So Goldman Sachs is like McKinsey, okay? Uh, they're the same. They're pretty much the same. But McKinsey, when you go and interview for a job, do you know how they recruit you? You play a video game. Dead serious. You play a video game where there are scenarios and you have to solve it. Really messed up video games. See, back in the day, it used to be headhunters. Let's get to the, you know, feeder schools kind of thing, right? Uh, Goldman Sachs kind of does the same thing too. Oh, by the way, did you notice that Goldman Sachs actually has the Apple card? I hope none of you have that. Um, So Goldman Sachs is the first one the IMF sends into countries before they come and take over right before the implosion (laughs) that happened um, last summer, Goldman Sachs had entered the play. Goldman Sachs, the minute you see them suits walking through, you know your country's over and someone is calling in the chips. McKinsey, on the other hand, are the chess players for the old guard. New guard, Goldman Sachs, they flip sides. And how do you know that? Well, because... The guy who got fired from McKinsey, the guy that you were just listening to got fired. He's been hired by um, Goldman Sachs. They got rid of him after his role in the opioid crisis. So Goldman Sachs 
took him and, uh, you know, and it's going beyond everything. Basically he helped raid Malaysia's investment fund. Stop. Now, while he apologized for what happened in South Africa and how things happened with ASCOM and all these things, right? He, no. You know that he was the one that was working and connected with Trillion Capital Partners. That's another company you should look into, Trillion. See, they all break apart. You remember when Vice did that hit piece on me? saying, oh, I've been in her chat rooms and she's dangerous because she has a lot of followers. It just doesn't look like it, right? Because she has like a lot of groups in a lot of platforms. So she spreads it out. So she doesn't look like a threat, but she's totally a threat about me. Well, that's the way, <laughs> that's the way they work. Most of these consulting companies and capital partners and capital this and investment back that and fund this are all the same company. They just spread it apart, feed into each other so you can't see. And they all lead back to Fonseca. But okay, I digress. Let's not go into the Pandora's box yet. Let the people see it themselves and say, wait a minute, Facebook just shut down. Pandora's papers were released. Now they have a fake whistleblower so they could start talking about it rather than the fact that their servers were taken down. All right, let's look the other way. McKinsey, simultaneously helped Big Pharma evade FDA oversight. This just came out. They've been contracting with them still. So I want you to think again. Who else did they help? Think. Who else did they help? Hmm. Did they help someone else? Well, here's a company everybody knows, and this is a very well done little clip. BlackRock. But BlackRock and McKinsey, I mean, Larry Fink and them, they're tight. It's almost like they're the same company. They just are a different department if people pay attention. Now, everyone's like, this company owns the world. Ugh. You'd be very shocked to know who owns the world. What if I told you that there was a company so powerful on the planet today that it affects almost every single aspect of our lives? A company that is so rich that they hold more assets than the GDP of every single country in the world except for two. A company that is the single largest investor in the destruction of our planet's forests and the largest money contributor to the fossil fuels industry. And what if I also told you that it's very likely you are responsible for the funding of this company and allowing it to do what it does. And even if you tried your absolute hardest, it would almost be impossible for you to stop giving them money. The scary fact is that this company does exist and you have most likely never heard its name before. The company is BlackRock. I'm splitting this video into two parts, the problem and the solution. This could be the most important video I've made on this channel because it gives you an insight into how the ownership of the planet works and who might be pulling the strings of almost everything in our entire lives. And that likely you are contributing to this whole mess by funding this whole entire show. There is so much to talk about in this video. So I'll just ask you to hit that like button and let's get into it. Part one, the problem. 
Okay, so let's talk about BlackRock and some of the giant problems that are associated with this enormous company. First and foremost, BlackRock is the largest asset management firm on the planet. They hold stocks, ownership of companies, property, and a ton of other stuff, of course, with the main purpose of driving profit for themselves and their shareholders. And they own a part of almost everything. And when I say everything, I really mean everything. Let me explain how. The names on the screen are the seven biggest banks in America. And in some way or another, if you are an American that gets loans, does your banking, has investments, or has your pension fund, you are likely connected to one of these banks. But who owns these banks? Well, in one way or another, BlackRock does. BlackRock is either the largest or one of the largest shareholders in all of these seven banks, all of them. So if you are part of the general American banking system, it's likely you don't really have a choice whether or not to deal with BlackRock and you're putting your trust in them to hold some of your money. You might think you have a choice with banking, but really it's an illusion of choice. But if you don't live in America, don't think that you are safe because it's likely that you are within BlackRock's reach as well. For example, BlackRock owns shares in the four biggest Australian banks and it is the single largest shareholder in all of these banks. In Germany, they own part of Deutsche Bank, the Commerzbank, as well as owning a big part of Germany's postal system. In the UK, they are the largest shareholder in Lloyds Bank. And throughout Europe, there are almost no country that BlackRock doesn't own shares in at least one financial institution or bank. And even here in little old Iceland, from the digging we've done, it seems that every single bank in Iceland does some sort of business with BlackRock or it invests its company's money into BlackRock's funds. So that is banking. But there are many other ways that your money finds its way to BlackRock as well. Chances are, if you've ever done any work before, you have a pension fund. Pension funds could be called 401, superannuation, or just a pension fund depending where in the world you live. When you put your money into pension funds, your fund puts it into investments to help it grow for retirement, but it's probably likely you don't have a say where this money is actually going. But it doesn't really matter anyway because they're all basically investing with BlackRock. In the developed world, there is a very, very, very high chance that your money in your pension fund is being invested with BlackRock or in a fund connected to BlackRock in some way. So your money is finding its way there as well. And what about insurance? Well, many of the largest insurance companies such as AIG or Allianz are either owned in part or invest with BlackRock's funds. And in America, more insurance companies hold their investments with BlackRock than with any other company. So it doesn't really matter where you're putting your money anyway, because in some way, shape or form, your money is finding its way to BlackRock. In places like America, it has been reported that BlackRock and pension funds are paying up to 50% higher than the asking price of single family homes in the attempt to buy as much of the real estate market as they can. And in turn, massively driving up the prices of real estate and lowering the chances of the everyday person like you and I to buy those homes. Media outlets like Vox would like you to believe that the housing market problems and the reason that the average person can't buy a home is nothing to do with the fact that Wall Street banks such as Goldman Sachs and BlackRock are flooding the market with money. But what they don't tell you in this article is that Vox is actually sponsored for a very long time by Wall Street bank Goldman Sachs. And on top of that, BlackRock actually owns a part of Vox by owning shares in the parent company of Vox called Comcast. So who can you trust? But it does get even crazier than this. To really show you BlackRock's reach, you don't just look directly at what they own, you also look what they own by association. BlackRock owns a stake in many investment firms and investment banks around the world. Let's take Goldman Sachs, for example, the one that I just mentioned. This investment bank has been at least partially considered to be responsible for the 2008 financial crisis. BlackRock is one of the largest shareholders in Goldman Sachs, meaning that they have very significant voting rights as to where Goldman Sachs invests its money. It means, by extension, that BlackRock also owns a lot more than what 
what appears first on paper. And remember the example that I gave of Goldman Sachs sponsoring Box? Well, considering that BlackRock owns a part of Goldman Sachs, they could also be considered as a sponsor of Vox. Want to get even crazier? Okay, well, I thought you'd never ask. There is this thing called circular ownership, basically. And booyah, circular ownership. That's exactly how I defined Hoven, Senator Hoven in North Dakota and his 13, 14 companies that are all within one company. But in this case, this is a more elaborate scheme and you need to look at the Pandora papers to see about Fonseca, right? That's what you have to look at. So what you need to see is how all of them came to the same place. BlackRock owns Goldman, Goldman owns BlackRock, BlackRock owns McKinsey, McKinsey owns Goldman, McKinsey owns some BlackRock, BlackRock owns some this, some that. Circular ownership. Basically, it means when two companies own a part of one another. For example, let's take another of the world's largest investment banks, which is JP Morgan. JP Morgan is owned by shareholders and other large institutional investors. And yes, you guessed it, BlackRock owns a part of JP Morgan. But JP Morgan also owns a part of BlackRock. So they not only own a part of each other, but because they own a part of a company that owns a part of them, technically they kind of own themselves as well. Confused? Well, that might actually be the point. In a lot of cases, business structures like these are designed in order to make it a little bit more confusing as to who owns what. The problem with circular ownership is that it can cause huge conflicts of interest and allow companies to have shadow monopolies on certain sectors of business without them having a direct monopoly. In fact, this type of business structure, circular ownership, is actually illegal in parts of the world because of how this type of business ownership can be used or exploited. But what about diversity and competition within business? Well, let's take Coca-Cola, for example, arguably the largest drink manufacturer in the entire world and yes I know that you know I'm gonna already say that BlackRock owns a huge portion of Coca-Cola but what about Coke's biggest competitor PepsiCo they have been in drink wars for the years constantly battling as to which one is better so there wouldn't be a conflict of interest right oh wait no of course, BlackRock is one of the largest owners of PepsiCo as well. But what about the news? I am sure that you think that there's a huge diversity in the media and the global landscape. But when you look at who owns the news, you might start to think about this a little bit differently. It doesn't really matter what side of the political spectrum that you fall on or what news source that you think is more truthful because chances are BlackRock actually owns a portion of one of these news outlets. Fox News, The New York Times, CNN, The ABC, NBC, The New York Post, Sky News, The Sun, and on and on and on. In one way or another, BlackRock owns a part of basically every media organization or major news outlet on the planet from North America to Asia, Australia, and beyond. Social media as well, Twitter, Facebook, which means by extension, WhatsApp and Instagram. Yep, BlackRock is one of the biggest owners of these platforms as well. In fact, it's estimated that in one way or another, BlackRock and Vanguard, which is the second largest asset management in the world, owns part of more than 90% of the media that we consume on a daily basis. So based on that, is it possible that BlackRock could have significant power in order to get any message that they wanted to across the world? I'll let you decide that one for yourself.
I think by now you're starting to get the picture. And when I said at the beginning of the video that there is a company that owns a huge chunk of the planet, I wasn't actually kidding. Whether it is through direct ownership or indirect ownership through companies that they own themselves, it seems that BlackRock has a finger in almost every single pie and there doesn't seem to be an industry exempt from their management and their control. And with so much ownership, BlackRock has a phenomenal amount of power. At the time of recording, it has been said that BlackRock owns $9 trillion dollars worth of assets that is not nine billion that is not nine million that is nine trillion that is a very big number and sometimes it's impossible to try to wrap your mind around that but to illustrate this point a little bit more nine trillion is more than the gdp of every single country on the planet except for two united states and china think about that think about how much value a country like germany or japan or russia or canada or south korea or australia or the uk produces in a single year how much these countries and their citizens spend on infrastructure infrastructure, trade, education, their military, and the value of the goods and services they produce in a year. BlackRock holds more in assets than the GDP of every single one of these places, and that is some serious power. And with great power comes great responsibility. So how responsible is BlackRock? According to the data, BlackRock is the largest investor in fossil fuels on the planet, as well as the main contributor to money flowing into the destruction of the planet's forests and ecosystems, including deforestation in the Amazon. There is so much more that I could talk about BlackRock I could talk about how they have been accused of abuse of human rights towards the indigenous around the world. I could tell you that even if your bank or your pension fund doesn't directly fund BlackRock, they most likely still have access to your private information because of their own financial management system called Aladdin. And I could tell you that BlackRock's main competitors, such as Vanguard and others, are also just as worrying towards the state of the world. Now, if any of this stuff scares you, it kind of should. Companies with this much power can single-handedly sway the economic future of our world. But here is the worst part, is that it is your fault that these companies have this much power. It is all of our fault. It's our money flowing from our banks, our pension funds, our investments that are going directly to these companies. We might say that we don't want the Amazon to be destroyed or that we don't want our planet to be degraded, but everything comes down to where the money is flowing. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do any of this without us. Because without us, they wouldn't have the financial strength to dip into almost every single industry in the entire world and dictate it according to exactly how they want it to be. But there is something that we can do about this, and I'll share this in a moment in part two of the video called The Solution. Hi, my name is Sorella and welcome to this Finance and Freedom channel. If any of this information is a little bit concerning to you, please make sure that you like, comment and share this video around so more people can be aware of this. The power of social media is incredible these days in order to make change in the world. Just to let you know, we've also recently launched a membership to help you become as free of a global citizen as possible. And there is 20% off now for a very limited time when you use YouTube at checkout. Finally, subscribe to our newsletter that people are raving about because there's a lot of other financial stories like this one that you get to learn from and enjoy at the same time. Link in bio for that. Part two, the solution. There is a solution and thankfully it's a lot easier to handle than the problem itself. And the solution is just to follow the money. When you deposit your money into a bank or you put it into a pension fund, that pension fund or the bank uses that money in order to make investments. This is how a lot of these banks and institutions make a ton of their cash. The sad part is that most people have absolutely no idea how their money is actually being used within their banking or their pension funds. And they do not know what these institutions are supporting with their dollar. So follow the money. 
of what your bank, financial institution, or insurance company is doing with the money. And if you don't like what they're doing, simply pull out that cash and invest it into a small credit union or a local banking alternative. Also, it's not just focusing on where that money from your institutions is being invested, but who actually owns these institutions, such as we the talked about that, didn't we? The banks or the pension funds. We talked if about you don't that. Like where the money trail is leading to find a different bank to do business with. All of this information should be public. And if it is not, just get in touch with your bank and find out this information. When you hear a media outlet telling you something about the financial state of the world, just follow the money to see who is actually sponsoring this news article or this information, because maybe there's someone behind there that has a specific interest in mind. To you mean they're driven by interest? Stop it. See, there's a woman that talks common sense. Like, what do I do? I can't pull out my 401k. You can loan against it and put it somewhere else and then loan against it again and put it somewhere else. <laughs> what was somebody? There was someone that was constantly posting on the chat. Mattresses are back, right? That's really important. You know, how you, uh, how you can do this, how you can hurt them. I said it. <laughs> Stop paying your pensions. Stop paying your unions. <laughs> Start asking questions. Take that shit out and put it somewhere where they can't use it. That's it. Put it where they can't use it. Put it in a safe. I'm just saying. Just saying. So let's let's take a a little skip. And a hop. We talked about black rocks before. Before we get into black stone and a little bit of the vanguard that blocks them, that guards the stones and the rocks. We should go back to understand what the black rock really means or black stone, whatever. Here's a fascinating, fascinating trip that I'm going to take you on that I don't think you anticipate. Hi everyone and welcome, this is the Apostate Prophet. I hope you're all having a great week. Last week I talked about the Kaaba, how its actual origins are very different from what Islam tells us, and how it is not related to Abrahamic religion at all, but has a rather pagan background. Now I want to talk about one of the most important features of the Kaaba, the Black Stone. The Black Stone is a black rock at the eastern corner of the Kaaba. No one really knows its origin or what exactly it is, but Islam tells us again a story of the origin of this stone. The origins of the black stone are quite clouded in Islam. There are a few stories regarding when and how the black stone came to Mecca. One is that it was given to Adam, but nothing is sure about that claim. What is accepted by most Muslims and Islamic scholars is that when Abraham was building the Kaaba, Ishmael went looking for a stone to place it at the corner. He couldn't find any stone, but while he was searching, the angel Gabriel brought Abraham a pure and white stone. That white stone is the black stone at the Kaaba today. Well, uh, if a white stone is touched by too many sinners, it turns black. If you want to test this at home, you can go out and look for a white stone, then find enough people who just masturbate it, and then let everyone touch the stone, <laughs> preferably with the hands that the sin was committed with. It will most certainly turn black. If it doesn't work immediately, you can just drop the stone, and maybe That's in a few thousand years, someone will tell... 
a weird story of uh, the god of masturbation giving the stone to some random guy who was going out and looking for a stone. Whatever. Yes, the Islamic belief really is that the black stone was brought by Gabriel from heaven and turned black from white. The heaven part is almost undisputed by the Islamic scholarly consensus because Muhammad says in Hadith that the black stone came down from heaven. You know, heaven is somewhere above. The color change is also believed to be true because the same Hadith says that the stone was whiter than milk but turned black because of human sin. The black stone was respected by both believers and pagans, but the pagans eventually took complete control of it and used it in their pagan rituals. According to early Islamic scholars, when Muhammad was 35 years old, the clans of Mecca renovated the Kaaba and removed the black stone from the Kaaba temporarily. But then they couldn't decide who would put the black stone back in its place again, who would have the honor. They waited for a random person, why ever, and in that moment, Muhammad came in, so they gave him the honor to put the black stone back into its place. This is only an early source that sounds incredibly dubious. After Islam took control, the black stone was destroyed several times by Muslims, heretical sects, and some other unknown people. Whenever it was destroyed, the pieces were cemented together and are held together by the silver frame around it. So in its current form, it is not a complete stone, but rather a shattered stone whose pieces are held together thanks to human effort. The Muslims did a terrible job at keeping such a holy thing safe. Now, according to un-Islamic, unbiased, and more reliable sources, the origin of the stone is neither Abrahamic nor heaven. It is found that the black stone was just venerated and worshipped by pre-Islamic Arab pagans. And the worship of objects was not very uncommon among Arab pagans. Neither was it uncommon among Semitic, non-Abrahamic people. And Arabs are considered Semitic people. Even according to early Islamic sources, the black stone was only one of many similar stones that were revered by pagans and symbolized their relations to God or gods. The stones were very often used to ask for fertility, life, rain, and so on, blessings that came from divine sources. According to the earliest biographies of Muhammad, pagans used to worship almost naked at the Kaaba and associated the Kaaba and the black stone with fertility rites and prayers. According to some sources, such stones were associated with cities, tribes, or uh, gods of those tribes. This knowledge is also supported by very early sources. Clement of Alexandria, a theologian who lived in the 2nd century, said that Arabs worship stones. Maximus Tyrius, who was a Greek philosopher in the 2nd century, also provided a more detailed explanation of Arabs worshipping gods for a quadrangular monument and associated stones. According to Jewish sources, Semitic people outside of Judaism were very much involved in stone worship. So, stones. What kind of stones? Were they rodish cones? Were they petrified stones? What kind of stone? And what do you know about paganism, Islamic paganism? Huh. That's something a lot of you probably didn't know existed, right? If you know one of the most holiest things that they claim that is Christian is the church, St. Elizabeth in Egypt, and it's a specific stone in that church that Muhammad touched and claimed that stone was holy. So again, one has to like wonder, right? Well, what is going on? Hmm? What is Islamic paganism? Stones, rocks, black ones. More so than other people. 
According to the Jewish Encyclopedia 1906, which bases information on very early and contemporary credible sources, Semitic people before Judaism and other Semitic people after Judaism worshipped stones wherever they were, especially in Arabia. There is even a term for this called Bertillus, which refers to sacred stones that were used for worship by Semitic people, Greek people, Romans, and others. The term Bertillus is Greek, but even that comes from Semitic, since Greek and Semitic people had a lot of mutual cultural influence. The stones were very often associated with gods, or seen as signs of gods. And many stones were believed to have come from outside of Earth, and were later identified as meteorites. Pre-Islamic Arabs also had stones that they used to worship gods, just like so many other Semitic peoples. And it looks very much like the black stone at Mecca is the same. The difference is that other people abandoned such practices once they converted to Christianity or Judaism, because it was seen as clear idolatry, which is supposed to be strictly forbidden in Abrahamic religion. While Islam, which is also supposed to be an Abrahamic religion, just kept the practice. The theory about meteorites shouldn't be forgotten. Many experts today believe that the black stone in Mecca is also a meteorite. Some other experts believe that it's merely a rare stone or some sort of glass. It has never been scientifically examined, although there is a myth going on among many Muslims that it had been scientifically examined before and uh, it couldn't be compared to anything else in the entire universe. It never happened. It would be very beneficial to actually scientifically examine the stone. I believe it would either help or extremely damage the Islamic faith. That's probably why Muslims are not interested in studying it, and authorities don't offer any possibility to make a study about that. But then again, if it turned out to be some complete random stone, many Muslims would probably make a new interpretation of some Quran first that they were not able to understand for the last 1,500 years, suddenly saying that stones in heaven are just like stones in our universe. But let's forget about the origins of the stone for a moment, and let's see what Islam does with that black stone. Are you ready? 1. Touching and kissing the black stone. According to multiple hadith, when Muhammad arrived in Mecca, he touched and kissed the black stone, and then started doing the tawaf, which is the extremely pagan-looking practice of circling around the Kaaba. 2. Pointing at the black stone during worship. Whenever Muhammad passed by the black stone during his unexplainable circles, he would also point at the black stone and shout Allahu Akbar while doing so. <laughs> I'm, I'm just... <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining that right now. Give me a second. 3. Hoping that the black stone will help you. The Messenger of Allah said about the black stone, By Allah, Allah will raise it on the day of resurrection with two eyes by which it sees, and a tongue that it speaks with, testifying to whoever touched it in truth. This is why Muslims nowadays pay respect to the black stone, and hope that it will testify positively for them on a day of judgment. <laughs> I really wonder how that would look with the current shattered form of the stone. Two eyes on separate pieces and a tongue somewhere. Oh, okay, let's just stop. Let's be serious. Studying Abrahamic religion, then looking at such practices in Islam, Islam looks like a very non-Abrahamic, practically non-monotheistic, weird religion that was created by a pagan-influenced merchant in Arabia. 
So many Islamic practices and beliefs look like very simple pagan practices and beliefs. And going deeper into the Kaaba, the Black Stone and other things, it looks like Muhammad was not very familiar with what the Bible teaches, which his teachings are supposed to be based on. In fact, let me finish this video with a rather ironic Islamic narration that quotes Omar, Muhammad's very close friend, advisor and second caliph. Omar came near the black stone and kissed it, and said, No doubt, I know you are a stone, and can neither benefit anyone, nor harm anyone. Had I not seen Allah's messenger kissing you, I would not have kissed you. Be even smarter than Omar. Don't follow Muhammad's inventions. Because if you were familiar with Abrahamic religions and the origins of Islam, you would likely never do such practices that were adopted by Muhammad from pagan rituals. The Black Stone, another form of Islamic paganism. Thanks for watching. If you like this video, please don't forget to like, to subscribe, and to share. My videos are not monetized, so you can watch everything without any ads. If you want to support me and my cause, you can support me on Patreon. The link is below in the description. Thank you so much for every kind of support. We'll be together again next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you again, and stay away from Islam. My cause, you can support... I'm just pausing it right there. Look at his sign-up. Aspiring Islamophobe. $2 a month. A bit more generous, $5. Cooperation and make me independent. Like, stop. Like, this guy is awesome on his humor, okay? We have to admit, the guy is a funny fucker. I, I found it extremely funny the way he was segueing it. But Blackstones are very important. They're specific. There's... Three things that are the most wanted, specific black stones, specific blood stones, red stones, I would say, kind of like the one that um, Soleimani had on his finger, right, that one, and um, blue mercury. A very specific, very ritualistic very specific and you know they love names right it's not like they change you know remember when i was walking you through hunter biden's laptop and how he had like companies number one two three four it's like hold on that's not creative uh i worked as an intern for bluestone capital that then became Bluestone, no difference. Blackstone, Blackrock, there's more names. But it's really important for people to understand they're not very creative because the names are very specific and they must be maintained. And what you're going to realize is, is that the federal government actually funnels your money to these people. And I found this amazing snippet, which is how we're going to end it, showing you this. BlackRock, Blackstone, and Vanguard. Here we go. And we know the banks control everything. What I teach you is the fact is that the Fed, of course, has bought everything. Just printing money, bought everything. But they have to funnel the money through other banks. So we have BlackRock. We have Vanguard. We have Blackstone. And they just about own every single asset 
now due to the C word. It's just about on everything. And like the gentleman explains in this first video I'm going to show you is that a lot of times they go through foundations, nonprofits. And if you look at crypto, you see the same thing. Foundations, nonprofits, when they have already hundreds of millions of dollars. But y'all enjoy the video. Welcome back to Squawk Box. BlackRock shaking up the business world with that decision earlier this week to make sustainability uh, the focus of its investment strategy. I spoke with Larry Fink about why, as the world's largest asset manager, he decided to make what he's calling a fundamental shift. We believe uh, a portfolio that focuses on um, sustainability and climate change will be a portfolio that outperforms. So the main component of the letter is saying this is going to be a great investment over the next 10 years. Joining us right now is Hal Lambert. He's the founder and CEO of Point Bridge Capital and Kent Hobbs. He's the chief investment officer of Amundi Pioneer Investment Management, uh, uh, one of the first movers on the ESG investment criteria. Hal, I want to start with you. Uh, you think that Larry Fink is making the wrong decision here. Well, what, what the American people need to understand is that there's been a war going on against American companies for at least the past 20 years. It started with a small group of left-wing agitators. It's mushroomed into hundreds of 501c3 companies funded by the usual sources that have gone after the boards of these companies to try to affect policy changes that they can't get passed legislatively through Congress or through state legislators that conform to their view of the world. And let me tell you, they're winning. There's only a couple of groups on the on the right that are pushing back on this. So while the rest of America has gone to work every day trying to pay their bills, companies have adopted new policies, these social responsibility policies, and now they're using those policies to implement things like defunding, you know, Congress people that don't agree with those positions, trade organizations that don't agree with the positions. And let me tell you, these left-wing groups don't have any, they don't care at all about the profitability of these companies. They only care about what's happening in their social responsibility world. So yes, I think Larry Fink is making a mistake. If you look at, you know, what he's, what he said in your interview, Andrew, there were two big red flags in that interview. The first was, he said that, hey, when he was writing this new letter on his social responsibility compact of sustainability that he's doing with his investment on the firm level, he was very emotional as he wrote it. <laughs> Why do you want an investment manager who's emotional about the investment decisions he's making? The second red flag on this was that you asked him, and this is the biggest one, you asked him about ERISA's uh, mandate that you have to focus on the, the profitability that, of creating the highest investment returns for your investors. And he said, yes, he knows about that. He wishes he could change it. So he actually said he wishes he could change that mandate that you have to focus on creating the highest returns for your investors. Those are really troubling signs from a company that's now managing trillions of dollars for investors. There's a good chance you've never heard of BlackRock. Founded in only 1988, in less than 30 years, this American financial firm would grow to become the company that owns the world, managing assets worth $6.3 trillion. These are assets that belong to their clients, mainly the pension funds of ordinary people, teachers, police officers, nurses, and many more. And that's just the beginning. BlackRock has also developed a software platform called Aladdin to perform risk analysis for its clients. It receives sensitive data from banks, insurance companies, and other important institutions. Through Aladdin, BlackRock has insights about the management of financial assets worth another $20 trillion. 
BlackRock also has shares and voting rights in many of the biggest European companies, in sectors such as energy, oil and gas, transportation, food, and of course, finance. The company holds public debt in the form of bonds and has real estate interests. And still, there's more. Our rock, you see, wears many hats. Aside from being an investor, it is also an auditor and an advisor. Governments and central banks invite a BlackRock subsidiary called BlackRock Solutions to audit them and to provide advice about the management and rescue of banks. Yet at the same time, BlackRock is often a major shareholder in the... Did, did you guys hear that? They have... BlackRock sends Black <laughs> a BlackRock company to audit them. Kind of sounds like fucking Dominion <laughs> and their auditors. I'm just saying, do you see how this works? And not only that, what was uh, the comment? And we've talked about, I told you the bank that is the source of funneling the majority of the money. All your union shit, amalgamated bank, amalgamated bank. All this green energy bullshit. This is BCCI 2.0. And these are the people in the background doing this. I wrote about it two years ago. This isn't news. The FBI hasn't seen shit. Nobody's looking at shit. Because guess what? The FBI <laughs> helps them get the money. That's what sucks. And we all let them do it. That's what sucks. But... Anyway, let's continue. Oh, you did hear that the project was called Aladdin. Is that like an Arabic tale, wasn't it? These same banks. In other words, the company often sits on both sides of the table. BlackRock Solutions gets privileged access to highly sensitive information. Information that could be valuable to BlackRock itself. Does this constitute a conflict of interest? No, says BlackRock, which claims that the company has established Chinese walls between its different subsidiaries. In January 2018, BlackRock's founder and chairman, Larry Fink, sent a letter to all of the CEOs of the companies BlackRock is invested in, asking them to do more than deliver financial performance and make a positive contribution to society. So BlackRock not only owns the world, it also wants to save it? Where are they now in terms of assets? So BlackRock is currently on almost uh, 6 trillion and Vanguard we're looking at about 4.7 trillion at the moment. Uh, but that is going to rapidly grow. Uh, looking at the, the average growth rates over the last five years, we could be seeing uh, Vanguard at more than 10 trillion by 2023 and BlackRock hitting that mark a couple of years later at 2025. It is Titan versus Titan. BlackRock and Blackstone could soon be in a battle for the same business. The companies are said to be diversifying their investments touching on what one another does best. Bloomberg Bureau Chief Jason Kelly wrote the story in this month's Bloomberg Markets magazine focusing on rivalries. Jason, welcome. Rivalries, but they own each other. Are you seeing the show yet? Can you see this? Thank Take you. us back through the history of the two blacks. So the history of these two firms is that back in the late 80s, when Blackstone was first getting started, he met a guy, Steve Schwartz met a guy named Larry Fink, who was a very successful mortgage trader um, at First Boston. Fink left his job there. Schwartzman said, come work with me. They made beautiful music together for a few yeah. years. Then they had what each has described as a fairly bitter corporate divorce. And BlackRock and Larry Fink went on its way. And over the subsequent 
20 years or so, these firms really existed in parallel and became the dominant firms in their respective industries. But respective industries, it wasn't like they were doing the same thing. Blackstone's competition was KKR. BlackRock's competition is Fidelity. That's exactly right. And when we were thinking about this rivalry issue and sort of what we could say that was new and different, we did think about Blackstone versus KKR or KKR versus Carlyle or something like that. The interesting thing in private equity, as both of you know, is that Blackstone has really put a lot of distance between them and their traditional, as it were, alternative uh, rivals. What has happened is that as they've gotten bigger and bigger, they're looking at new pools of money, especially retail investors. Now, you, 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 look, at, you look at this uh, chart here and you can see that BlackRock, as far as total assets under management, yep. just destroys Blackstone. It's not I mean, even it's, close. Yeah, $4.8 to $310 billion. But, but uh, something you pointed out to us, which is not on this chart, is that Blackstone actually makes more money in profit. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So on, on the same basis, about a billion dollars more per year. And so when you look at how investors are valuing this, you, know, you saw that huge difference uh, in, in terms of total assets under management. But when you look at market cap, they're only about 10 or $11 billion apart. So these are firms that actually are competing. Pocket not just change, for- right? some money from institutional and retail investors, but even in, in the public sphere as well, as companies start to, or as investors try to assess who they're going to invest in. Well, and before I so rudely interrupted you, you were explaining that they're they're go- starting to go after the same clients. Well, that's exactly right. Same and investors. The, sa- the same investors and uh, the, the limited partners, as it were, and, and also the retail investors. So Blackstone is seeing the 401k market. They're seeing lots of different things going on in terms of individual investors. At the same time, BlackRock is looking at those profit margins that we talked about and saying, let's get in deeper to infrastructure investing. They have an alternatives business, which has more than $100 billion. dollars. to do. Just to say Blackstone, they seem to make a lot of money doing that. You can't just put a new shingle outside and say, I'm going to do that too. Well, that's exactly right. And it's a hard business to, to get into for sure. There's a guy over at Blackstock, BlackRock. Blackstock. BlackRock uh, running it. Combination name if they ever got together. If they ever got together again. That's true. Sorry, there's a guy. There's a guy, sorry, at BlackRock uh, who used to work at Blackstone, Matthew Botin, who is running that alternatives business. They are hiring into that business. They're looking at that as a very profitable. uh, Okay, you know what my takeaway is? Maybe a rivalry, but I'm pretty sure both are doing pretty well. What does that tell you? So now we know which door they came in through, which is Amalgamated Bank and all the unions. Isn't it funny how all the unions are under the SIEU? And then there's, you know, the massive union, the AFL-CIO, and pay us. And we will make sure that you get extra money than Social Security if you do what we tell you. (laughs) Oh, their days are numbered. Their days are numbered because the people are taking it back. They've realized that they're both being consumed and they're the consumer. You're the consumer on the hamster wheel. In other words, you're paying them to put you on the hamster wheel. Okay. That's what you're doing. And so you need to take the power back for one at a time. I'm saying this today in 2021 because we're going to be dealing with this quite later. So how do we take the money out of the equation is the question. If money is what hurts them, you know, there's BlackRock, Blackstone, <laughs> Blackwater, Black, anything you want, Black, in the beginning. It's quite interesting. This is it. Now, I'm talking about it today 
because their fate has already been sealed. Well, I've talked about it before, but today it was actually sealed. <laughs> so that's what's um that's what's happening. So you should kind of just look into a little bit of what they do, not much, just a little bit. And you know, think if this is actually what's going on, that there's one person that obviously needs money because the money controls, right? Not because you need it. It's because money controls. Money allows you to have control. Therefore, if the money is taken out of the equation, then you have no control. And that's what's important here. Once you take money out of the equation, there is no control. So all of us should be thinking, well, how do we take money out of the equation? Is it barter? Do we change the monetary system? Is the monetary system going to collapse their funds? How do we take back property that they've already rightfully stolen? How do we do that? Those are all questions that should be coming to the surface close to the, I would say, next Christmas. Those will be questions that will be coming to the surface as to how we strangulate things. Um, because money seems to be how you get elected. Money seems to be if you get a voice. Money seems to be everything. I mean, even in our politics, in Ohio, there's this guy that's running, Mark, right? And I might have him on tomorrow. You know, he's a great guy, grassroots. I don't even know why he's running since the elections are a sham. But, you know, for the sake of it, he's a good guy. What do you do? So all the candidates for Senate were, like, invited to places to talk. But um, for some reason, he wasn't. Do you know what the reason was? Money. That's what the reason was. Now, it's really important to understand Blackstone uh, and McKinsey, right? Same thing. And all of them very well. Because what you're going to find out about COVID is something like this. If we let China take advantage of us, shame on us. You know, what I've always enjoyed about China is the government has always said, we will do what's in China's best interest. We expect other countries to do the same. And anytime my American friends said, why did China do that? I said, because it's in their best interest. And if we let China take advantage of us, shame on us. But that's not China's problem. But the core point I'd like to close with is, the U.S. faces enormous challenges. 90% of them are self-inflicted. They have nothing to do with China. And by challenges, I'm talking about an ineffective government that is so polarized that on the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill, not a single Republican voted for the bill. So clearly the political system is a major fundamental issue for the U.S. I mean, if you go back to Confucian values, the best and the brightest have always gone into government in China. In the U.S., they've gone into business. So if you think about it, the U.S. has B students who totally disagree with each other and don't get anything done. China has A students who are all on the same team. 
my concern is if the U.S. doesn't step up and deal with its own internal problems, that China will continue to be a scapegoat. Because rather than admit we couldn't get it done, it's easier to blame somebody else. But is that going to get in China's way? Not at all. The U.S. has always been a dualistic society, as is most of the West. And by dualistic, I mean a, a bias towards finding good and bad, uh, winners and losers, a zero-sum game mentality. That is baked deeply into the culture of the competitive American environment. China, as most Eastern countries, is focusing its culture very much on harmony and balance. Very different. The second difference has to do with worldview. Uh, the Chinese. Remember, this is the same guy who said, well, China did what they had to do. This is the same guy, right? That said China had to do what they had to do. If they had to throw people in the bands and people never saw them again and lock them in the houses where they have no food and water, well, so be it. It's all about peace and harmony. The Uyghurs are in camps, work camps. Waiting for when they're don't when when they're <laughs> when they need to be donors, right? This is a fucking joke. How do these people get on TV and talk? Double speak. How do they do this? It's a joke. Yes, we're polarized because half of them want to be just like them and treat you like you're scum and that you're worth nothing and that you're of a lesser God. And then the other half are like us who believe that there should be harmony by respecting and loving one another and having healthy competition. There is no ultimate. Now, one thing that he did say is this COVID thing. It's our fault. China says, I will do what's best for my country. Therefore, I expect the other countries to do the same. That's like when you're going to war with someone. Huh? You're going to look after your own army. I expect you to do the same and be on ready. Truman helped do this. We did all of this. We created that. We created that. Now we're going to blame them. Who fucked with our elections? We did. Okay. We did. We gave into the new gods thinking, <laughs> and they think that they can take down stubborn ones that have trained and have no morals and their citizens have been programmed so to have none either. They're the ones that are going to be the first ones signing that paper for you to get evicted to in China. They're the first ones that are not going to give you the food because it's not the right thing to do. We did it. So how do we fix it? We fix it. Are we going to sit down and say, oh, all these people that, yeah, they helped. Of course they did, because just like the guy said, America's filled with B students. We're dumb. They've dumbed us down so much because we we rebelled against the crown. Therefore, they must have that blood. They must derive from that. Those still exist. We must eliminate that, that that sense that they're supposed to be free. Let's give them the illusion that they are free. Let's give them the, the illusion that we're all at war. Let's give them the illusion until they all bend the knee. And this is where you are. Everyone so comfortably 
living their lives, right? <laughs> Trying to chase an American dream they sold you. Did you know that the chick that was talking today at the Senate, the supposed whistleblower that I told you that's funny, she's a whistleblower and she can't talk, but she's going to be on the media and, uh, yeah, whistleblowing, asking for more censorship. I told you that was going to happen. Well, that's because it's been set. That was planned. That was planned. Can you not see they have a plan? Therefore, if there's people that know the plan, there are mitigation strategies. There are mitigation strategies. The more we blame others for our shit, the more shit never gets fixed. And that's the thing. This is the guy that said it was okay. Yet he speaks sense because we're stupid and we're allowing him to walk all over us, but not us. We only have five more states in the whole nation to file writ of mandamuses right now. And from what I know, those are getting a cracking. This is where we take back our country. Well, you want to monitor me? Yeah, we're going to go to a restaurant. We may have phones, but we're going to be kicking it. We're all going to sit down and have coffee and we're going to plan. And when you decide to come, we're going to be the ones recruiting the rest of the citizens that are going to be like, wait a minute, this doesn't look right. We're going to be leading our communities. We're going to be taking over our communities. We will be taking the power away from them and back to us. The only way we do that, the only way you escape tyranny, there's five steps, one step. And this is where I circle back to my comment. I love reading the Library of Congress. I love whenever I would travel and have the opportunity to read things that I would go into those basements where they give you gloves and you're just like, you know, in a preservation room to read documents. I was proud to have read a few uh, documents uh, that inferred how, why Alexander the Great was so great. Everyone wants to know why he was so great. Remember, this guy didn't liberate. He liberated nations, but also owned them. He created an empire because he liberated them to own them. And what he did was, in order for them to love him and lead them and allow them to be free and allow them to exist in their differences as he sweeped across toward the east, what he did was, right, what he did was, he was so genius, you would have to think he was, he was actually quite a sick man, sick in the head, but he was genius too, because he made other people love him because he helped them liberate themselves while he conducted war. And how he did that was he found the one thing that would help them evade tyranny. And there's only five things you can do. And the key one is to protect the institutions that are built on the foundation of that which you want to keep. So when you look at America, the United States of America, the Constitution is what uh, we find is the key to our happiness and our harmony, correct? That is the key. I'm getting distracted because there's a phone ringing. <laughs> so that's the key to harmony. In our nation, the foundation of the Constitution to be upheld and to be upheld 
well, right? That's how we have our nation. So how do we protect it? By holding what? The judicial branch accountable. This is where you weed out those that don't count, weed out those that are not standing by the law because you are still free on paper. And as long as that stands, you need that one institution. So what do you do? You protect it. And in order to protect it, you must use it. You can't protect something you don't use. You can't protect something you don't use. Therefore, using the court system, you help yourself. Because remember, the officers in those offices within that branch, which is the judiciary branch, are bound by laws. They cannot use discretion on the law. They cannot use discretion because ultimately they will be held accountable. See, this is not going to go away. And no one will allow discretion on black and white law. It's typed on paper. And this is how you escape tyranny, by protecting the institution that protects what you want to protect. And only the judiciary branch, only that branch can uphold your constitution. Our Supreme Court is explicitly named <laughs> Article 3. Very specific what is laid out that they can do and how they do. So this is how you protect your nation. This is how you protect your constitution. This is how you protect your freedom. By using the institution you wish to protect. You don't just allow it to exist for them. You take it, you use it, and that's what we're doing. So I am just really proud that so many people filed because it is a big deal to go head first and fight. Now, just so you guys know, next Wednesday, there will be no Tory Says Show. And um, next Friday, there will be a late one because I'm going to be traveling a lot. And as you know, um, the week after that, on the 18th, I have court uh, against Dominion. So I will not be doing a show. So I just wanted to let you guys know next Wednesday, I won't. I wanted to do a movie night tonight, but it's like, yeah, time escaped me. But it's a short one and a fun one. And I'm thinking we could do that tomorrow only because I'm, I've just been prepping for everything today. So... I'm just reminding you guys, next Wednesday, no show. I will see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, you know, we rise. Is in bloom. The PR transmissions will resume. They'll try to push trucks to keep us all dumbed down and hope that we will never see the truth around. Another promise, another seed, another pack.
fly to keep us trapped in green. You see the green belt wrapped around our minds. Menless red tape to keep the truth confined. 